You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and 3CR.org.au. Those are all the places you can go to listen. Uh, also, while you're at 3cr.org.au, you, uh, you can head to the Encyclopedia program page, find us on Facebook and Twitter, get in contact with us that way. Uh, also, follow along with some of the uh, things that we share during the week, because a lot of the things that we talk about on this show, we also share things that uh, complement those topics on the Facebook page, on the Twitter stream, and... Uh, Oh, we're sort of hoping uh, to to change things up a bit uh, as the year progresses and hopefully deliver you more content uh, in here in the studio right now with Ash Blackwell. Ash, how you doing? Afternoon, doing quite well, Nick. Now, we, we had a bit of a conversation about some uh, improvements to Encyclopedia that we're hoping to get underway soon. Yeah, Is it, it too early a... to say anything? Well, how about we just say we've been doing some planning. There's things that we've wanted to do with the show for quite some time time the first and most simple of which is to put the podcasts up regularly yep, absolutely um you know there's just it's a bit of work and yeah it's... We, we both do a lot of activist stuff outside of what we do on the radio show and um it's just been difficult to to kind of wrangle all of that into some kind of form so we had a good sit down last night and we've created a plan on how we're going to do that so that we can make the content more available to you our listeners across multiple formats and um i think we'll be announcing that uh in a couple of weeks but um yeah there's a few, some exciting few weeks, yeah. things coming little little bit of planning to go behind the scenes but also uh if you do want to help out with what we do one of the one of the biggest supporters of what we do is 3cr is this radio station we've just had our radiothon uh we have raised about half of our targeted goal you can still donate at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate uh if you do make sure to say uh that it is part of the Radiothon and it's for in psychedelia because um, that just helps us nudge that target up. It's a very expensive um, thing to run a radio station. So it was a quarter million dollars, um, which sounds like a lot of money, but that's basically running costs for one year for a radio station. So that's the uh, price of you know land and the uh, price of transmitting and the price of power and the price of equipment maintenance and yeah, all of that. Just keeping the lights on, keeping the panel going, all of that stuff. So 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. I think for context, I went to um, one of our sister community radio stations in Melbourne for a live uh, kind of concert broadcast uh, last year. I was at the PBS studios just down the road and I was looking around going, damn, they look so fancy. (laughs) Yeah, PBS and Triple R's got very nice studios too. uh, They've got a nice performance space there and... And you know, PBS is uh, just about to move to uh, Johnson Street. There's a big old, near that, um, where the, the circus um, uh, stuff happens, there's like mm-hmm. a whole big old Art Deco building that's been abandoned for years and it's going to get uh, fitted out and filled with all sorts of different organisations, including PBS, so they're going to get some studios there um, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, also in the studio, uh, Meredith. Meredith, how are you doing? Hello. I'm good, Nick. How are you going? Uh, good. Now, tell us, um, we're, we're not going to get into what we're <laughs> going to talk about now, but just tell us why you're here. I'm what, here, what you research. Yep. Yeah, so I'm a music therapist and I'm also a music psychotherapist. Um, 
in my regular day job, I work in early intervention to strengthen the parent-child relationship with music for vulnerable families. But I'm really interested in the role of music in psychedelic research, um, particularly in the integration space and um, the way that music can explore those altered states much like psychedelics do. Um, So I think there's a really, really bright and beautiful future ahead. And you'll also be um, one of the people helping out with the integration session next weekend at the Australian Psychedelic Society event in Belgrave. Uh, It's a mushroom information Mm. event. There's a wide variety of things happening, workshops, talks. There'll be a bit of music as well, uh, bookstore, um, and you're going to be – just talking I mean I think it's just going to be about hearing stories and and sharing yeah yeah it's not so much about um an integration space and and you know really exploring the depths um of your experience it's more about sharing your stories um feeling maybe not alone (laughs) yeah sort of taking off a load and talking about positive and negative experiences that you may have had but yeah as I said keeping it fairly fairly light and for people that have come to terms with perhaps some potentially challenging experiences and they've processed it and they want to share it with others who might have been going through experiences to sort of know that there is a way to to get through it and work through it so we're going to be chatting a little bit later in the show about uh, music therapy uh, but there's a few things that have been going on this week Uh, in terms of drug policy and law. I suppose number one on the list should be the medically supervised injecting centre. I see you here in your purple T-shirt, Ash. Big big orange tick, medically supervised injecting centres, orange tick. Uh, So it opened a week ago. We've already seen some pretty irritating coverage from uh, the Herald Sun. The story was that uh, there there was one main story about an assault uh, and the allegation was that there was a lady, she was taking pictures, I believe, around the area. She was approached by two people, um, uh, not not necessarily related to the centre at all. We don't know what happened. Uh, We know that she has filed for assault um, and we know that she's uninjured. So... And that got turned into front page news by the Herald Sun on this, like claiming that this is creating assaults. The the headline was um, Rejection Centre. And a lot of the coverage focused on the fact that um, there were still people injecting in the street in North Richmond. And some of them either didn't know about the centre, some people that the reporter spoke to weren't that interested in it. What was really interesting for me about that coverage, because I'd gotten sent the link first thing in the morning, like people kind of going, oh, look at this. And um, I was also outraged and then I reopened the link on my phone uh, about five hours later and the headline had actually changed (laughs) Um, and it better reflected the reality and the reality is that people have been using it I think um, uh, upwards of 100 people a day yep and they've been successfully managing between one and three overdoses a day so it's already highlighting the success of um, the program and it was never going to be a perfect policy. It's never going to address all of the social issues that happen in society. No one policy ever can. No, it's uh, it's it's a band-aid on a very gaping wound uh, and it's not something that's going to... It's not meant to be a silver bullet. What it is meant to do is to help people get onto the direction that they would prefer to be on. And I think there's a, a bit of a misconception that goes on in the mainstream media with this um, idea that people that take drugs just don't care. And we do care and there's a lot of different drugs and people take drugs for very different reasons. And usually there's a, a a good reason, maybe not always a 
the greatest reason, but it might a lot of the time if people are doing something in a in a harmful way, it's probably a coping mechanism of some description. Yeah, I think the other thing to kind of highlight there is, I mean, you mentioned the T-shirt that I'm wearing. This is a T-shirt from the um, Richmond Victoria Street Drug Solutions uh, team. And for those who haven't been following along the journey, they're the local residents group that really mobilized around this issue because they wanted an effective solution in their own community. And so one of the things that they shared from um, across their social media this week was the fact that they were already noticing a reduction in... um, I guess what's sometimes referred to as drug litter, so used syringes and discarded equipment that was, you know, one of the one of the things that kind of mobilised the community. They're like, look, it's just this present problem there all the time. We're bothered by the, the stuff that's left there, but also deeply concerned about the people that are using our backyards and, you know, the dark spaces around our homes. And, um, you know, I think that they've already seen for, for themselves in their community, like the beginnings of a positive outcome. And the thing to remember here is it's a trial, like the fact that politicians and uh, conservative media are screaming about problems already a week into a, you know, a two year trial is um, a little bit absurd, to be honest. I, I yeah, I think even there, there must be people even within their own ranks going, um, guys, this is like we're really pushing at something here. Is it really worth it? Um, just some statistics from the centre so far. And it's very early days. As you say, it's not really time to be rolling out the statistics and seeing whether or not it's been a success. Hasn't been enough time yet to know that. But if you want to hear some statistics, uh, there have been already over 400 visits in less than one week. Between one and three potential overdose deaths were averted every day. Uh, And most, most of what is being injected is heroin. There are... 2%, 95% 2%, 95% heroin, 2% of methamphetamine, and 3% of other drugs. It was never going to be just heroin. It was, you, you, I, unless there was some kind of like testing thing coming in, it, it would have been, the whole point is that people can come in and be, uh, ha- have somebody that's a professional to talk to and, and, a referral as well. If they need a referral to something else, if they're trying to fix something that they keep getting caught in, excuse me, <laughs> then that that's helpful. Um, do we want to touch on another quick news thing that was happening this week? Yeah, what do you got? So there was a bit of... Um, there's been a bit of talk about what's happening in South Australia right now. Um, essentially, they have a, a Liberal government that's come in with some very conservative and punitive drug policies. Um, and there was a report that came out highlighting the failure rate of uh, sniffer dogs and um, contextualised with the policy that South, the South Australian government have pledged to take those sniffer dogs into the school system um, to basically sniff around kids' you know, lunch boxes and, and locker rooms and all of that. Um, and and what, the, what the figures highlighted was that 85% of these um, detections don't find any drugs. So essentially people are just being harassed in the community um, for no good cause. But I think for me, one of the key things there is that, um, I mean, it's an awful policy uh, and it's not the only one. They haven't even rolled out all of their policies yet. The, the other one that um, I think we might have spoken about it on last week's show was the the pledge to increase penalties for simple cannabis possession to a $2,000 fine or up to two years in prison, which... Um, I don't know, for any of our listeners out there that have maybe smoked a joint at some time in their life, um, it's generally recognised by most of the community that that 
practice varies from benign mm. to beneficial, we've, which we've seen mm. with the growth of the medical cannabis movement, to occasionally problematic, but not something that uh, would would seem to necessitate throwing people in prison for what cause, you know, certainly not for their own good. It's interesting to see, um, if I could just make a quick comment around that, how with the change of governments, how much things can change around that. I remember, you know, I'm from South Australia, I say proud, um, and, you know, back in the sort of uh, early to mid-2000s, I think the laws changed because you used to be able to own 12 yeah, cannabis plants. Yeah, de- decriminalised yeah, effectively. Yeah, it was decriminalised. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like this new Liberal government hasn't actually communicated with any other states and gone, okay, guys, how are you doing it? You know, what? how are you managing this? I mean, particularly here, as you were saying just before, Ash, with, um, you know, the uh, medical cannabis that's coming in, um, it's really baffling that this is happening and concerning. It's very concerning. It's uh, We've been interested to get more to the bottom of what's going on. Who Who is informing the government on these ideas? Is this just coming from their own head or are they? do they have people in their ears uh, suggesting certain policies? Because I have received a little bit of... I'm asking for more information. It's only been like a Twitter comment so far saying that Drug Free Australia has been lobbying uh, the South Australian government. Drug Free Australia are based in Adelaide. Um, they're, a, a lot of their constituency, uh, a lot of the, the, the members are from Adelaide. Uh, so they probably have a little bit more clout there, and it uh, seems that that's where the, all these policies uh, are, are cropping up. So where is it coming from? I'll uh, be interested to find out. We'll, we'll try and get to the bottom of that. But uh, um, look, Ash, you were overseas recently. You were in uh, you're in Warsaw. I was in Warsaw um, at the Global Forum on Nicotine, which is the biggest meeting, international meeting for um, tobacco harm reduction. So alternative uh, pathways for consuming nicotine other than smoking cigarettes and, and basically lighting and inhaling burnt tobacco. Um, while I was there, I spoke to um, Florian... Uh, oh, Shaibin. Shaibin, um, who's one of the co-founders of... Um, I'm just trying to get my notes up as I speak. Um, he's one of the co-founders of Students for Sensible Drug Policy in Ireland. Mm. And um, uh, do you have the rest of his bio up on your page there, Nick? Uh, <laughs> just trying to pull it yep, up right so now. So he's also from Help Not Harm, Deputy Director of uh, Youth Rise, which is an international working... Uh, he's an international working group member of Youth Rise, and that's a uh, youth uh, sort of progressive youth organization uh and as you said ssdp in ireland he's the co-founder um and this was recorded while you're in uh warsaw yeah we um we spoke about various things that he's into but the reason he was in warsaw is he's looking into uh doing some research with a homeless population in ireland around the uh, around getting vaping products into their hands my name is florian scheibein i'm um I'm a PhD student, but uh, I'm here at this conference as part of a scholarship on um, you electronic delivery systems in the homeless population. And we want to see what we basically want to do is uh, try figure out what are the barriers to implementation in that group because the tobacco-related harms are disproportionately their homeless people are disproportionately affected by tobacco related harms but no one really considers harm reduction around tobacco in that population because they think that 
just leave them have the tobacco. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it's the tobacco that kills most of them. Um, COPD, lung cancer, di diabetes. So it, it's an it's an area that, and I think that just having even a small intervention, just the intervention itself is going to have a positive impact um, and then potentially it might have a positive impact on other types of drugs um, and just probably having looking after yourself a bit more too. Not, but there's a number of issues around are they going to get stolen, are they going to be charged properly, um, will they be repurposed and can use for fentanyl or something? <laughs> sure. Um, and, and, um so you're primarily trying to identify what those barriers are so that you can target an intervention effectively, is that...? We're going to have hopefully between 30 to 50 um, people who are in uh, short-term accommodation. Mm -hmm. We're going to do rough sleeping, but it's going to be hard, it would be too hard to do uh, street interventions to pass it through ethics. Um, so, yeah, so, hope, so hopefully what we're planning to do is like find 30 to 50 uh, people who are homeless in support of temporary accommodation and meet them once or twice a week. Uh, sit them down once, uh, have um, find out first of all about their different different markers around smoking and drinking and things uh, and social other social determinants that they might have. But then find out like find out what sort of brand uh, we will have a, a brand, but what sort of strength they want, what sort of flavor, and then meet them between once and twice a week for a period of three to six months. We, so we're, we're just trying to iron out the little details. But. And with your cohort, is this people that already express an intention for wanting to shift? Like, you, like how do you find your cohort to participate? And, um, and so it's just inquiring into uh, into the barriers and the utility, it's not like a comparative study against like no, non no, yeah, uh, yeah, or NRT was another one that would be an interesting one because you have issues with like prescription medicines that you can't <laughs> advertise it. So it is a, right. um, it is going to be complicated, but I think essentially that it'll just be offered to people who are smoking and nine, around 90% of people who are homeless uh, smoke. So um, there will be support workers. One of my friends is in one of the shelters, and he's a mad uh, vape advocate. So it will just be offered as an opportunity for people to. It's going to be a tough one, but uh, we, we'll just say that we'll give you the vaping, and we want to see what it does. Like they're legal in Ireland, um, and we can give them evidence to say that they're more than likely they're five percent as harmful as tobacco. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. There is liability issues, but... And um, and I know you through the International Students for Sensible Drug Policy Network. You told yep. me about some other interesting stuff you're doing there around the, uh, the drug checking apps and oh, different I, things going on in that, so in that space. So from the SSDP, we moved, a number of us uh, set up Help Not Harm. So we, as part of that, with uh, Youth Organisations for Drug Action and the Nightlife Empowerment Project in Europe, we're going to create an app that connects service users to service providers. So the idea is that if you're at a festival in England, uh, Boomtown, and you uh, you see the loop who does drug checking on site and have uh, the welfare service, if you're walking around and you see someone who's passed out on the ground, that you can send that geolocation directly to them. Um, also, if they find a particularly dangerous batch of drugs, they can send an alert to you. Um, there is issues about 
and if you're in the tent, uh, you can call them up. But we, we want that model though for all services. So whether it's um, mental health or travelers or LGBT, we want to create a platform to connect them all together. And like you were saying before too, is essentially what we're going to, it's the early warning system of civil society and the key affected people who are using the services. Because authorities have all this information uh, within their police and their their institution, but they don't really have the civil society organisation data, which is works with people. So it, it's a great opportunity to create a system to connect all those stakeholders together: the, the service providers, the service users, and that if they want information, they can request it, and we can either give it to them or not give it to them, yeah. depending on. And um, I guess, like, while I've got you here, I've got my kind of Irish correspondent here. Um, we followed some of the news of what's been happening in Ireland over the last couple of years. And, like, there's been some positive news stories. Do you want to, like, maybe go over some of the highlights of, of uh, how you've campaigned effectively and, and maybe what some of the wins are that you've got on the board? Well, definitely, it's, a, it's hard to say that... Um, they're wins because they're so small. I know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> over, over the years, we've always been campaigning for supervised injection sites um, and um, cannabis-based medicines and decriminalisation. And now all of the three of those, there's going to be a supervised... There is legislation passed uh, the Supervised Injection Facility Bill or Act. And uh, now we'll open one in one of the low-threshold services. Um, which hopefully by the end of the year that will be set up. They're, they're doing construction at the moment in that building, so I presume that's connected together. Um, then with cannabis, we drew a number of uh, like parents who wanted access to their medicine. Um, w one of the mothers, uh, she had a, an event with us years ago with SSCP, Um and some American ones. We had a, we had done so much with Help uh, Not Harm too, but uh, after a huge fight. One into the Compassionate Access program. Now there's around seven or more, and hopefully the government in October will release like a bigger, more expanded uh, program. Um, we'll see. Hopefully sooner. So it's quite restrictive mm. still, the medical cannabis scheme yeah. in your country. Yes, with a consultant. Um, so ho I'm hoping that uh, they shift to doctors because we, what we've told them over and over again is like you're doing the same mistake that Germany did. Germany had a compassionate access program, and that was with doctors. And it's for like um, crazy repeating it, but it's not very logical discussions. It's always based around emotion, and the same with the injections. Political conservatism, mm. like caution within the politics of it. With the supervised injections, one of the big drivers. Uh, well, I wrote an article ages ago, uh, but it was a nine-year-old girl fell on a heroin syringe. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to all the politicians. No, no, thank you. Um, so I wrote to all the politicians and I said, um, this nine-year-old girl is falling on a heroin syringe in between you not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So how about you start changing the law? And then people, they were there, oh yeah, we're the person who changed it. And they had six parliamentary questions and they opened private members' motion on addiction services. They talked about it at the beginning. It was 13 parliamentarians all together just because of this uh, syringe. And like the chance... Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of narrative that uh, works with the supervised injection sites, and then the same sort of narrative with um, cannabis. It's like little children who want need access. Um, 
because you're appealing to two co main cohorts and probably the same in Australia you've well that's I mean, what that's what made the difference in Australia it was like it was a um, consumer driven revolution and it was primarily the beginning of it was parents and sick children and like those of us that were in the activist space we mostly went hands-off like we we just kind of went no no we don't want to muddy the water we have a different agenda and we don't want to kind of taint what's going on there because it looks really promising with what we're doing I think on reflection, we probably should have paid closer attention to the way the legislation was being crafted because same in Australia, we got we got pretty mediocre kind of schemes that uh, repeated a lot of the same mistakes that had already happened overseas. You know, we've got, we got 100, 200,000 people using it medicinally with 600 of those that have legal access to products that many people in the community think are lower quality than what you can get on the illicit market. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the other project actually that might be of interest too is that we're with Utroids, which another organization is, that's how I know uh, Penny. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I know Utroids. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're going to work with the police on a trauma informed policing project, which trying to get the police to re conceptualize how they deal with at risk youth. Um, and hopefully not re-traumatize them because once you know that if you send, if you pick someone up and you bring them to prison, you're going to increase their chance of intravenous drug use and intravenous drug use costs society money. It's, like the compassionate empathic argument should be the argument that wins, but it's, it's an economics or imperative. But what, well, you've we, got to use the argument that works, don't you? Yeah, and it, it, the, th the thing is uh, you don't want them to what we've been doing with the war on drugs has been wrong, but rather than what we need to do is like have a way out, mm -hmm. and I think trauma-informed policing could be one of those ways. Is like we have a um, we have a program back home in, in some of the states where um, uh, for some call-outs there'll be like a medical health professional psychiatrist that works alongside police mm. for um, some call-outs. Do you have anything like that as well? Um, I don't think we have that to the same extent. Uh, it's definitely something like Nick Crofts, uh, uh, the editor of the Harm Reduction Journal. We had an event with him. Um, he, he would be very much of that, like partnerships is very important because there's a role for police, but they are policing loads of things that they shouldn't be policing. Um, and partnerships is one thing of a mental health, they, like if, in America, it's often people die at the hands of a trigger happy police person. Uh, we don't have guns in Ireland really, except for the armed response units. But, um, they do have partnerships with civil society, but yeah, definitely that's what they need to be doing. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting feel. I think when, once we once the police start protecting and serving again, that's mm -hmm. the, that's what it needs to. Yeah, they have a function, but we need to figure out how to. They they should not be causing harm. with blue skin reflect 
on In Psychedelia. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. And we were hearing from Ash before speaking uh, with uh, Florian uh, Scheibian, who is uh, from Students for Sensible Drug Policy in Ireland. But right now, Meredith is in the studio. Meredith, do you, do you have a title yet? Or are you still, what, what's your position in academia right now? Where are you? <laughs> I am a registered music therapist. Registered that's, music therapist. That's one title. Uh-huh. Human being. No. Um, Human being. I'm also one. a music psychotherapist. Okay. So they are my two titles. Um that I can, you know, call myself. I'm registered with the Australian Music Therapy Association, so that's my title. I'm not a doctor. I haven't done a PhD, a PhD, although one day, hopefully, if I can, you know, Bust decide to yeah. spend all my time there. Um, yeah, so that's sort of me. So you're in here today to talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about um, psychedelic uh, mm-hmm. sound therapy. So this is um, sound therapy that's... Well, give us a little bit of a background. Where did this come from, this idea of psychedelic psychotherapy? What is it? Well, well particularly what was music. The idea? Yeah, so, um, so guided imagery in music. So this is the area that I um, have a qualification in. It's of music psychotherapy. So it developed out of psychedelic research in the late 1960s at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Centre when they were doing... Um, LSD research for people that had addictions um, and for particularly alcoholism um, and for people that um, had severe mental health issues that couldn't be uh, resolved through other verbal methods at the time, which was the 60s. So we've, we obviously have come a long way since then. So um, I guess, you know, the things that they were doing back then um, aren't as practiced now. So um, essentially uh, they had a research team at the Spring Grove Centre, which was an old cottage um, in the grounds, and there was a lot of money poured into LSD psychotherapy research at this time. And they assembled a team of uh, a clinical therapy team, um, all men except two women. Um, and those two women were an art therapist, Joan Kellogg, who went on to develop, um, man, you know, the use of mandala in in art therapy, um, and published a lot of books around um, interpreting mandalas within art therapy. Um, and a woman called Helen Bonney, who was a music therapist and violinist, and she was employed to program music for the LSD trips. So we're talking twelve hours of music, and. After all, a lot of experimentation with a lot of rock music of the day, a lot of blues music, um, jazz, different kinds of music, she found that Western classical music worked uh, the best or was the most well-received and effective in these sessions because of the way that classical music is structured. And often a lot of these pieces come from symphonies. Um, They come from larger works. They're they're pieces taken from larger works where there's a story. There's a story, there's a narrative. So there's natural imagery that occurs. And so music um, was then programmed to sort of, you know, represent the stages of an LSD trip. And they, you know, back then in their research, they found that there were six stages to an LSD trip. And I think those were, from memory, pre-onset, onset, onset, um, build to peak, 
uh, peak stabilization and return to normal consciousness. So those were the six stages of uh, that were found in an LSD trip, although you could say that there were more stages within those stages. Um, so she programmed music that would go across those stages and music was found to be beneficial to the experience for the client undertaking these LSD trips because of the way that it unfolded at the experience so well and that it guided this imagery and people were able to integrate their experiences or, or rather have that container for experiences um, so that it wasn't as abstract, that they could have this sort of uh, journey um, that was contained within it. It might feel like a bit of a, a strange discussion for some uh, that might be listening along going, well, but isn't music sort of a taste thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, don't, don't we sort of have a taste in music and surely we'd each be very different on this? But you're saying it's maybe not that difference. We have a lot more commonalities uh, than we might admit to sometimes. Yeah. I mean, sure, it is a taste thing. I mean, you might not like classical music, but it's not so much about taste. It, it's really about what works with the experience. I mean, you listen to a, you know, for anyone out there who's taken LSD, you know that a, a simple four-minute blues tune or a rock song that's got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, outro, it's not really going to um, be necessarily relative to your psychedelic trip. Yeah. Um, you need something that has a journey that takes you somewhere. And- so I'm wondering about in the um, modern context, mm-hmm. they've used music, I know, in the psilocybin yes. studies for uh, end-of-life um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, like my kind of, uh, I guess, experience of a lot of modern electronic music mm-hmm. is it's almost sometimes a reinterpretation of kind of that classic thing. It brings in multiple instruments, like especially for live psychedelic mm-hmm. music, you can have trance DJs that play three-hour sets and they go over a journey. So I'm wondering, is that relatable in the therapeutic context and is Absolutely. that something that they kind of program in now? I don't know much of the programming around the music for those those studies. Yeah, so um, the one big study I know about is uh, Kalen is the researcher who um, has worked with Carhart, Robin Carhart-Harris um, in the UK. But really, yeah, like you're saying, the, a lot of this electronic music um, – has this same kind of narrative attached to it. And a lot of those musicians are also classically trained. A lot of electronic musicians have a background in classical music, which is sort of what led them to do a lot of programming and and sort of reinterpretation of music. And so absolutely that music can have a role um, within listening to psychedelics. I mean, I think about all of the festivals where, you know, it's all electronic musicians and and the way that they put together a set. Um, And there there is a bit of a... I, th- I think the people that are organising how which DJs go in a row and then um, like organising the playlist for festivals, they're aware that there's certain kind kinds of altered states that are likely to be there, and that you can play to those. There's a Absolutely. there's a way to to go to it to help them on their whatever they're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely, it's a curated experience, and it takes a lot of effort and thought to go into putting together a music festival like that when you know that you're going to have punters that are going to be in some pretty vulnerable spaces and they're going to go into these places where they can be easily manipulated and it's a big position of power to be in and to put together a program where it plays to the needs and the and the wants of of the crowd 
is it's really important and it's um I think they do such a great job in the way that they yeah that the way that they schedule the different performances um you know throughout the night and recognizing that there's a you know if you think about those stages of the LSD trip the build to peak you know well the pre-onset the onset the build to peak the peak and the stabilization they basically program music of a festival to kind of cover that so by the time it comes to five in the morning they're not going to be playing music that is going to be for you know the right in the peak moment they're going to be playing more chill sort of down tempo stuff that sits in those spaces um it's funny it's, it's, it's the science of uh of, of doof of <laughs> <laughs> the programming of of music at doof um you do have a piece of music for us here. Now, this is an example uh, of something that might be played to somebody. So, obviously, in, in this environment, the party environment, it is a different sort of thing mm. to what you're doing if you're doing psychotherapy with yes. somebody. That's a one-on-one type thing. It's uh, not a party. <laughs> you're there for a, a psychotherapy session. So, mm. maybe run us through, like, how it, how it sort of goes down. Sure. I'd love to. So... Within, so I'll give you just a little bit of a backstory. So um, after the war on drugs happened and, and all of the LSD research had to stop, um, this music therapist, Helen Bonney, thought, how can I continue working with music in these altered states and, and replicating some of this without the drugs? And she developed the Bonnie method of guided imagery in music. So it's basically what happens is that someone comes along and, and, and comes to therapy about whatever's going on in their life. Um, and, you know, but depending on what they, they come to the session with, depends on what program of music I would choose. And so what's happened over the last 40 years of this method being around is that there's been, you know, hundreds of programs that have been created by different music psychotherapists to use in sessions. It could be someone comes to the session and they've broken up with their long-term partner or they're thinking about breaking up. We have programs of music that um, are designed to help sort of unfold an imagery experience where you can work through that and you can come to some kind of different perspective and decisions um, just through the music. So the music is like a co-therapist. It does the work. It goes for about 40 to 55 minutes of music. Um, people are lying down on a couch and I simply ask questions about what they're experiencing, where they are, what's happening for them, you know, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. And imagery could be, doesn't have to be a visual scene playing out. Imagery could be very somatic, could be within the body, could be memories, could be feelings, it could be different thought processes or it could be very abstract. So imagery is such a broad term to cover anything that can happen in that music space. And so the music finishes and then I let people know that the music is finished to sort of get them grounded and re-entering normal conscious awareness um, and then we have a chat. So this this piece is an example of of some of the, you know, of, of a song that we use to guide imagery and this is um, by the well-known impressionist composer Debussy um, called La Mer. So um, we'll I hope you enjoy the imagery that short, comes up. Short snippet. Maybe close your eyes if you can. No, not if you're driving, though. No. <laughs>
gosh, really does. Um, it's a whole story going on in the music. Story. So, and and when you're under the influence of a psychedelic, it uh, it really becomes a whole story. It becomes a, a literal sort of visual representation in in the mind. And I suppose that's the point that you're working with that space. But uh, one of the one of the things that we were talking about while that uh, piece was on was that it's not... A, I noticed when reading the uh, articles on some syst- systematic research, people that have uh, used the body method, was um, that the welcome and unwelcome influences, so two categories of things, were often mirrors of themselves. So intensification, guidance, calming, and openness were all seen as welcome, but then there was also intensification seen as a downside. Um uh, guidance in the wrong direction um, as as another um, uh, calming, I think, anxiety, I guess, all of these. So, I mean, it's such a it's such a subjective territory, I suppose. How do we tra- how does science tread in this area that's so um, murky? You've got to follow along with what a client is needing and checking in. And I think, you know, often. You can choose, if you were choosing a program of music to play, it might seem all, you know, having all the best intentions. But as you said, Nick, you know, when you're in these vulnerable spaces, music has this ability to go beyond all the barriers that we put up for ourselves. It goes beyond everything um, that we sort of hold as, a, as our front, as our, as our pr- um, presentation to the world. And so what can happen is when you're in these vulnerable spaces, you're easily affected and you're easily manipulated and easily pushed into spaces. And this is what music does, particularly under the influence of a psychedelic. And it's no surprise that basically the research has shown, well, yeah, it can be really positive um, or it can be very detrimental. Um, And it really is about checking in with how it's going. There is no right answer. But ultimately it's... it's, um, recognizing if a client is ready if somebody is ready to go on this kind of journey and particularly under a psychedelic we've sort of touched on this already but um music does have this 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 very interwoven relationship with our emotional state so it's not just under the influence of a psychedelic all these things play out through all normal life and um a lot of the things um i imagine the choices would be well uh we were sort of talking about before about if somebody is say, feeling sad, then they play themselves sad music. And it's not because they want to um, proliferate sadness necessarily. It's because that's like the comfortable space. It's the container. It understands them. It, it, it understands what's going on in that time. I mean, how, how many times have we been through a breakup and every song sounds like it's written for us and our partner that has just left us and abandoned us. And so we, we feel so connected to this kind of music and as you said it's not to make us more sad but it's about letting us process until we're ready to move on so it's helping helping with that territory and i suppose this is where it gets into the the murky territory because in these terms we're talking about a, a landscape that's not necessarily logical that is about people's emotions that is um often very difficult very complex lots of things going on so it is a, it, it but you're essentially it's mapping this landscape it's figuring out how to yeah absolutely and music is one of the only stimuli that can access all or in you know be processed in all areas of the brain um particularly your amygdala so your emotion center um your deep long-term memories. I mean, it's why music is so powerful in working with people with dementia because it accesses these long-term memories where all of the short-term memories have gone and this is what's left. And so it, it, 
it connects with your emotion. It's the most powerful memory trigger. And so, yeah, it is it is murky, but knowing that we can work with that to a strength at the same time and we can, you know, through programming or putting together lots of programs of music um, for different reasons, which is what I do in Guided Imagery and Music, um, you can carefully navigate the waters much better, um, knowing where someone's at, putting on a program of music based on what they're saying to you based on what they're feeling and then choosing on that so really it's it's always client-led so i'm curious about two things um you mentioned integration as well so i'm Mm. wondering about the role that music plays in integration and i'm also curious about um what you send clients home with Mm. like following this you know especially if it's ongoing is that do they take stuff home to then practice some of the the process themselves So I'll answer that question in two parts. Um, So with integration, um, currently in psychedelic psychotherapy research happening in the world, a lot of music is being used in the psychedelic sessions. But what happens as part of this um, therapeutic um, process is that a client is having several sessions of verbal psychotherapy to integrate the experience. But what's not happening or what I've, I've read in, in the most recent literature is there is a gap in music being used in the integration space. So people are having these profound and, and challenging and big experiences in the psychedelic therapy. But when it comes to the verbal, the integrative psychotherapy, all they have is verbal psychotherapy. That I think can be extraordinarily limiting, particularly because it's very hard to put words to a psychedelic experience and process it and and internalize that and, and it make a long-lasting change. But if you give people the option of using, say, this Bonnie method or using music in a sober space to take some of the imagery from the psychedelic experience and use that in a music-guided space, I feel like it could then be integrated a lot better because then you have words to it. You've gone through almost this three-stage process where imagery has come up in psychedelics. You take some of those key images and you process it in a, in a music experience with a therapist and then you follow it up with a discussion. We're just about out of time, but before we finish, maybe a, a quick summary of... It start, this started in the 60s. Where are we now? Where, like, obviously, there's been a lot more research. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot more going on. Uh, is, it, is it useful for people that are suffering from um, certain mental health Absolutely. Ails? Absolutely. As of 2017, uh, the Bonnie Method of Guided Imagery and Music has been um, considered an evidence-based psychotherapeutic method, um, and it's practised all around the world. There, are, there is the American Music and Imagery Association. There's a European Music and Imagery Associ- Association um, – um, and there is here in Australia uh, the Music and Imagery, Imagery Association of Australia. Um, it has profound benefits for people and, you know, don't just need to use it in a psychedelic space for integration, mm. but for people that are experiencing grief and loss, um, addictions or, or deep-seated trauma that hasn't been worked through or hasn't a client hasn't been able to work through in normal psychotherapy, they can use it um, and explore it from this holistic way. Um, but I'll just do a bit of a plug. If anyone's interested mm. in in having any sessions, um, uh, I have a private practice um, under the name of Inner Sound Therapy. Um, uh, so that's www.innersoundtherapy.com.au. You can find me and also on Facebook um, if you're interested in having 
an experience. And there's some more information on the website. We'll make sure to share that link as well. And uh, also, Meredith, you will be along uh, helping out at the Australian Psychedelic Society uh, event next weekend. Uh, it's a, a mushrooms event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to be hearing some stories from people and sharing stories. It won't be a music therapy thing, but maybe in the future, you know, maybe we maybe, can do, hopefully. get some people along. Um, and uh, if you do want to find out more about that event, you can go onto Facebook and follow the Australian Psychedelic Society and look under the events there. Um, uh, there's also information on Twitter. Um, basically, one o'clock uh, Saturday, uh, $12.50 plus booking fee um, that you can buy online uh, at Suki Lounge in Belgrave. That's um, uh, 1648, I think, Burwood Highway um, from 1 till 5 p.m. So it's just going to be a Saturday afternoon thing. There will be talks uh, on a wide variety of things um, uh, from uh, hunting and identification to the science and research that's going on to uh, books that have been published about um mushrooms and all sorts of things and some music as well so that's next weekend so um we heard from florian earlier in the show and i just wanted to he asked me to pass on an acknowledgement which i'm happy to do and um that is just to acknowledge chloe uh chloe span one of the people that helped me found students for sensible drug policy and he couldn't remember who else possibly penny hill uh contributed to an inquiry in ireland around women and drug use and um their contribution helped get a new strategy and I'll just quickly read what that means from the document. The new drug strategy will aim to increase the range of wraparound services to meet the needs of women who are using drugs and or alcohol in a harmful manner, including those with children and those who are pregnant. So, um, yeah, that's just nice to highlight the international collaborations that can have a and it real is, meaningful impact. It is people. an international movement because that's where prohibition comes from. It comes from the United Nations, as uh, stated by the United States, but yet yeah, we all got it. Uh, so it is a global effort and we do need to be talking to people everywhere. And But not forgetting that the best people to talk to are the people that are right here and they're all around you. Come and find the others. Um, We will be back 2 o'clock next Sunday afternoon. In the meantime, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. You can find us there. Uh, Find us Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And Queering the Arrows up next. See you later. This is Encyclopedia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.